the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay, and I am your host. I hope you're all doing well. I hope life is treating you good, and I hope you're enjoying everything that we're providing for you in our podcast. So today, we're going to have an amazing guest. And before I get to that amazing guest, I'd just like to ask you, please subscribe and follow the show wherever you can. We appreciate your you know, listenership. We appreciate you being here. We hope you're enjoying the guests. So on to this week's guest. So today, I'd like to welcome Bill Edgar. Bill Edgar is the Coffin Confessor. He is paid to gatecrash funerals and speak for the dead. He is a one-of-a-kind professional, a man on a mission to make good on these last requests on behalf of his soon-to-be deceased clients. And this is the extraordinary story of how he became that man. Bill has been many things in this life, son of one of Australia's most notorious gangsters, homeless street kid, maximum security prisoner, hard man, family man, car thief, professional punching bag, philosopher, inventor, private investigator, victim of horrific childhood sexual abuse, and an activist fighting to bring down the institutions that let it happen. A survivor. As a little boy, he learned the hard way that society is full of people who fall through the cracks, who die without their stories being told. Now his life's work is to make sure his clients' voices are heard and their last wishes delivered. The small town grandfather who needs his tastefully decorated sex dungeon destroyed before the kids find it. The woman who endured an abusive marriage for decades before finding freedom. The outlaw biker who is afraid of nothing except telling the world he's in love with another man. The dad who desperately needs to track down his estranged daughter so he can find a way to say he's sorry with one final gift. Bill is a private investigator turned professional funeral crasher and is set to become the next big thing in Hollywood after landing a book deal, a reality television show and a movie contract with Paramount Pictures. Welcome to the show, Bill. So welcome to the show, Bill Edgar. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. A very interesting life and a very interesting story. <laughs> yeah, you could say it's a uh, it's out of the box, isn't it, so to speak? Uh, like, obviously, I can imagine when people come across your story, they have, like, different feelings because what you do is quite shocking to some people, but to some people it's a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's it, You can't please everybody all of the time, but I do please quite a lot of people, especially those uh, people that have vultures in the family. <laughs> there's always vultures. <laughs> what do they say? Where there's a will, there's a relative. <laughs> there's a relative, yeah. It's really funny because, you know, especially with church and religious ceremonies and that kind of thing, people can be you know, really hypocritical. And sometimes they're only turning up for an event or to look good in the eyes of other people. And none more so than funerals, because people might say they're there with good intentions and good reasons. But a lot of the time, they're either there for gossip, or they want (laughs) to see what's happening, or they're there for something maybe that can benefit them, no? Absolutely. And and you're right on point. A lot of uh, religious people... um, well, you know what? They play with the devil at night and they walk home with Jesus in the morning. Yes, yes. We used to always say, my, my dad was a bit of a drinker and we used to always say he was like a, a um, street angel house devil. But a lot of religious people are those types of people, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without doubt. Let's go back a little bit before we kind of get into the guts of what you do and kind of go back to your early life. Because 
you know, for me as well, your life right now is really interesting, but your life when you were young and growing up was really interesting, but quite difficult, no? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if we go all the way back to, uh, I guess, to my eighth birthday when, um, you know, for my eighth birthday, I was um, sexually, physically and mentally abused by my grandfather and then given a... um, a bike the price we pay oh yeah yeah it, 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 you know that went on for years so it went on for you know until i was uh around 13 years of age and when i um i went to school i went to i wanted a scholarship actually to a to a school here in australia which is one of the most prestigious schools in australia um and i won a sporting scholarship soccer okay and i was very good and at the age of yeah so the age of 13 i was able to um yeah, win this scholarship, and uh, I got five-year fully funded scholarship to this school. But the um, first year, I was targeted. So again, uh, you know, the predators uh, targeted me, and I was abused at school as well. And it was it was horrifying. It was yeah, my whole childhood was stolen. Okay, going back there just a little before that, obviously, you know, your relationship with your with your mother was quite difficult, and and you know. It was kind of to do with your father as well, wasn't it? There was obviously the connection between your mother and father obviously wasn't great. And then when you came along, it was the wrong timing, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my dad was Irish. He was born in Belfast. His his father was Belfast. His great-grandfather was Belfast. I mean, you know, uh, and mum was English. She was from... Um, uh, she was from a place in England. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, Manchester. Okay. And um, when they both met in yeah, so when they both met in Australia in uh, 1962, I think it was, it was uh, the Irish and the English again, <laughs> and it just didn't work. Okay. Sometimes with those kind of relationships, they are set against a, a backdrop of drinking or gambling or drugs or whatever. And maybe at in the initial stages, they're, you know, quite rosy and everything's great and it's a lot of fun. But once you settle down to married life mm. and responsibilities and having to look after kids, things can change quite dramatically, can't they? Oh, absolutely. And they did. I mean, my, my father was a, um, he was what they call over here a gangster. He was a boxer. He was a, um, a hitman. He was everything that you didn't want to know in a man, um, especially my father. I mean, if he was alive today, I'd probably punch him in the face. And my mother turned to, uh, you know, she was more of the uh, trying to win money all the time. She was a gambler, and a, gambler a terrible gambler. And to, till this day, she still gambles to the best of my knowledge. Um, and, and she's always trying to find that quick dollar that will never come. She's probably spent more in a lifetime than she'll ever win. Okay. And so you mentioned there your, earlier your grandfather. Was that on your mother's side or your father's side? Oh, that was my mother's side. How did he have access to you in that way? Was he living with you guys? Did he visit you or were you staying with him? Well, he was the matriarch of the family. I mean, he was the breadwinner, the only man that, that uh, worked in the family. And, and it was a large family. Um, you know, I've got uh, you know, three uncles, three aunties, and my mum, and three siblings, and we all lived in the same house with my grandparents. Um, and that's how it was back in the seventies, you know, seventies, early eighties. I mean, that's that's just how we lived. We all lived under the one roof, and he was the powerhouse. He, he everything he said, people did. Yeah, and you were born in sixty-eight, was it? That's correct. Yeah. 
So at that time, I suppose, you know, when you were born into that family and as you said, your grandfather was the, ma- the patriarch of the family, in a way like that, grandparents, uncles, whatever, can groom children as well. And sometimes they can be the most trusted, but the most vile are, are have, you know, the most bad intentions, can't they? Oh, absolutely. And I was groomed under, under the noses of every family member. And it wasn't until I, I turned about... Um, I don't know, I was around 30 when it was confessed to me by my my mother and my auntie that they actually knew and they did nothing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Turned a blind eye. Well, yeah, I mean, and my auntie said that, oh, your mother had to because she had nowhere to live. I mean, but what's that about? I, I, I could never fathom that. I couldn't understand it. And my auntie actually said she was abused, but then it turned out she wasn't, but she just used that as her, I guess, way of, you know, making her feel better that she didn't dob him in or something or or help me or just just her way of doing things. But, look, they're, they're all dead to me now. I mean, they could be alive. I don't know. I haven't seen them. And if I hear they've got a funeral, I'm crashing. <laughs> As we say in Ireland, no better man. I mean, you don't want to make an enemy of you, do you? Uh, look, I'd be your worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I better be careful how I promote this, you know. <laughs> No, no, you'll be fine. You got the scholarship and, you know, you were very good at soccer. And as you said, once you went to the school, you were targeted. I I know, obviously, through research that you were targeted by one of the teachers. And but was was there also targeting and bullying by other boys? And because of your background and they were maybe from a rich background? Yeah, I've got to say there was. But at the same time, I think I had something they didn't have. See, that was from such a rich background that they never knew what it was like to have nothing. They didn't know what it was like to walk the streets as a kid and and pick up bottles and turn them in for cash for a bit of ice lolly or a drink or whatever it was. You know, they always had things handed to them. So I learned quite quite at a young age um, the art of um, being able to live without and to live very well. And... uh, that became one of my astute things at school, especially at the age of 13. I mean, I recall my first job ever at the age of 13 was transporting the rich boys by boat in the middle of the night across the broad border to nightclubs for $2 a person so they could party. Then I'd take the boat back to the school and I'd sleep in their beds so they wouldn't be caught. Okay, wow. Very ingenious. Yeah, I had to be. Fill in that gap for me. So between being at home in that you know dysfunctional family and then going to the Southport school did you like run away and you were homeless on the streets before that or was that after the schooling no that was basically after the schooling but what I did do is I ran away from home quite a lot and I just lived at the school I just became a boarder without the school knowing I actually went into the dining hall and I'd eat with all the boys I'd have dinner I'd have breakfast I'd have lunch okay and 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 I'd sleep there some nights and, and I'd go home in the, the next afternoon after school and mum would just look at me and say, oh, where you been? I'd say, at school. And she'd go, yeah, whatever. There was no problem. There was never an issue. And I was 13. <laughs> wow, wow. And in that school, that teacher who targeted you, how did that come about? Like, were they one of the, you know, the people who would look after the kids at night or what was the connect? Was it a, a daytime thing or would, would the teacher kind of get you on your own? How, how did he groom you in that way and how did he target you? Yeah, so basically you've got to go back a step to 
we I won the scholarship and we were all living in government housing. We didn't have two cents to our name. Um, so everything was fully funded for me. Um, and when I attended the school, um, after the first month of meeting, you know, the teachers and that, one particular teacher who didn't sexually abuse me but abused me mentally and physically um, would slap me around and call me a charity case and that I wasn't worth his time teaching me because uh, I didn't pay for the privilege to go to that school and he found it offensive. So he would um, he'd send me on out into the balcony or tell me to sit in a corner because he just wouldn't teach me. He refused to teach me. And I'd complain about that to other teachers and say I was being mistreated. And one teacher was uh, took me aside and looked after me and tried to give me special education, but he was also fondling me and abusing me at the same time. And it became – he groomed me and then, yeah. And unfortunately, it became a, a very toxic environment, whereas – I had to go to school um, and I was going home and I was being abused at home at night by my grandfather and going to school in the morning and being abused by this teacher and then going to classes and being smacked around and, and not taught by another teacher. So it was, yeah, it wasn't a great life. Wow. No, and, and you know, one, one thing obviously I read in, in some of your stories there was you were not just, you know, abused but unloved as well because – you know, there's lots of kids who are loved in one environment and maybe being abused in another, mm. and that can help them maybe escape that abuse because there's somebody they can trust and they can turn to. But in your case, you didn't really trust anybody, did you? I had nobody, no one at all. And, and you're right. I mean, I've I got to say, I, I craved my mum's love. I wanted my mum's love. I, I needed it. I, I wanted it so bad that I would do everything I could I even stole for her and I'd bring home money um, and she'd just take it. She wouldn't ask where it came from or, or anything. She'd just take it and that was it. Um, I'd work for my – I got forced to work for my grandfather in the shop and I'd get paid $5 a fortnight back then and I wouldn't see a cent. That would go to my mum, you know, and I didn't mind because I wanted my mum to love me. But she never – no, she never did. To this day, I don't think she ever did. Yes, yes, I can – yeah, it's very hard, but a lot that happens a lot, and it's kind of a road that never comes back, isn't it? Because the intentions were never there from the beginning, you know, to have a child that they loved. So they look at that child completely different, and that child tries extra hard to be, you know, a loved child, and, and sometimes it's just mm. pointless, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And in my case, I started to... Um, look like my father, act like my father. I didn't even know my father. He left when I was four, so I didn't even know him. But because I had those attributes and growing up, she hated it and she hated me more and she hated the point that she had to care for me and, and look after me. And then it, obviously she was on welfare and getting a pension, so therefore she couldn't get rid of me either because I was her source of money and income too. Wow. And, you know, when you said there your dad was from Belfast and your mom Manchester, were they first generation or second generation Irish and English? Oh, uh, it'd be second. Second, okay. So, like, her dad went over to the Gold Coast and, and, and your dad, dad, and so on. That's an interesting thing you mentioned there about the attributes of your dad because you re really didn't know him, but yet you started acting like him. So, 
Was that through some influence or because you knew about his reputation or do you think was it solely kind of genetics? Oh, it was definitely genetics. I didn't know him at all. It wasn't until I was I got sent to prison that I got told all about him. Wow. You know, I was 17 at that time, so I had no idea who he was. It's crazy, isn't it, that, that people, because I've, I've met people like that in my life who've never met their dads, but yet if you knew their dad, you'd be like, how is this possible? They're like a clone of their father. And it, like, was there some <laughs> bridge in the middle that, made, that taught them something? But a lot of time it is genetics. Yeah, exactly. Look, I, I was told my whole childhood that he was, he was dead, he was killed. And um, he wasn't a good person and he died and that was it. But when I found out more about him at the age of 17, I found out that I had three other uncles that I didn't even know in Melbourne and I had no idea. And I actually made contact with them when I was about 19 and they were thrilled to even know I was alive and around. And they were like, you're kidding. And I said, yeah, I'm Billy Edgar, you know, and they said, oh, you've got to come down, come down, you know. So I... I got in the car and I went shot off straight down there and each one of them, each one of them just stood there and went, holy fuck, you're your dad. Wow. You are your dad's spitting image. Yeah, it was, it was insane. And I said to him, I didn't know my dad. I didn't know him. And then I'd do certain things and they go, oh, no, that's what your dad would do, you know. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tree. What do they say? The, ap- the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but I think I rolled far enough away. Yeah, that's the trick. The apple doesn't fall, but if you can learn to roll away and, you know, <laughs> plant your own tree, that's what the best way of doing it, isn't it? Oh, that is the best, isn't it? That is the best. I mean, my old man was probably one of those hard men that wanted to be successful in, in bad ways. But the best way to be successful is, is is just to be you. And don't let anything take that away from you. Just be you. You don't have to hurt people or cow behind people or do anything. You know, just be you. Yeah. And so when you were in school then and, you know, you, you mentioned there, obviously, later on you went to prison. But tell me about life, you know, living on the streets then when you were homeless and you were kind of became a bit of a gangster yourself and you had to fend for yourself and steal and, you know, probably fight and everything. Like, that was, was that something that because of your dad's genetics in you that you fell into easily or was it something that you struggled with to be like that? No, I, I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Some people say that, uh, you know, I wasn't the average street kid and um, I was never the average fighter. And I've got to say to you, I've lost more than I've won, but I've never... Um, I've never backed down either. Um, but I've got that, uh, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's just a natural ability to, it, it's like my sport. Okay, I was really gifted at soccer. But give me a cricket bat and I'd be gifted at cricket. Tennis, same thing. Didn't matter what sport it was, I had this gift. And, and, and it was the same with boxing. The same, exactly the same thing. I, I got punched in the face. The first time I ever got punched in the face was, at, I think I was 14 at school. And I just stood there and then he punched me again and I stood there and I laughed. I thought it was the funniest thing ever because it, it didn't hurt. And then I'd hit this guy and I'd knock him out and I'd think, oh, shit, oh, no. And then I realized that from a very young age that I've got the highest pain levels that it, it wasn't a real bother for me. I mean, I was getting bashed from pillar to post and I'd still stand there and I'd be going, is that seriously, that's how you punch? That's it? <laughs> and and I, I don't know why or how it came, but I got a high pain threshold, yeah. Do you think that a lot of it is a higher mental pain 
threshold or physical pain? I think it's it, well, it has to be mental because at the end of the day, you know, at the age, like I say, yes, I ended up in prison and did a few things there and, and a lot of fighting. I actually liked, and, and it sounds weird, but I, I liked getting punched and getting hurt because it gave me a feeling. It, it just it just gave me a feeling of belonging or something. There was a feeling. I, I, I didn't have... Being alive. Yeah, I think. I think so. And, you know, sometimes like that, you'll hear people say, you know, they want pain inflicted on them because it makes them feel important or special and it makes them feel like, oh, I can do this easy. This is easy. I can excel yeah. at this. And they feel like maybe in their lives they haven't felt important or wanted or special. But when they get something that they can excel at, mm. even if it's something that's negative or hurtful to them, they're like, I'm good at this. I can take this pain and come back. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's 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 the truth of it. I mean, I met some of the worst of the worst criminals in, in the world, you know, some of the, the most hideous people. And I don't know where it came from, but... I'd just walk up to them and, and I'd say, oh, you know, you killed that little girl. And they'd go, oh, no, no, it wasn't me. I go, yeah, it was. And I'd just bash them senseless. I'd near kill them. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't even me. It, it was like somebody I was possessed. But then it, it wasn't until a guard actually came up and saw me. And he, he was an Irishman too. Paddy O'Connor was his name. I'll never forget this guy. All right. Paddy O'Connor walked up to me and he said, Billy, you keep doing what you're fucking doing, you're going to be here for life. Be a better man. And I said, yeah, whatever. And he says, I'll tell you now, your old man was in that yard over there, in that cell over there, and he stayed here a long time. Do you want to do the same? And that is when I knew about my old man, by him. How did he make the connection? Oh, he knew the names and he knew. It, it was just one of those things because I, I was when I was in there, I was in there for about two months and I got talking to this lifer who'd already been in there for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And I started talking to him and he says, oh, what's your real name? And I said, oh, it's Billy Edgar. And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, I knew a Billy Edgar, an Irishman. He did quite a few years here. And I said, yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I said, nah. He goes, yeah, mate. He's from Victoria. He was a boxer and he was a hitman and he did all this shit. And I went, nah. Oh. And it was Paddy O'Connor that was in the uh, mess hall one day. And I actually said to him, I first approached him and I said, did you know my old man? Because I heard that Paddy O'Connor had been working there for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And uh, he didn't answer me. He just would not answer me. And I went, oh, whatever. Wow. And it wasn't until I beat up this guy that he came up to me and he says, he pointed out my old man's yard his cell and says, you'll be a lot longer than he ever fucking was if you keep doing that shit. Well, you see, probably he didn't want to tell you because he didn't want you to kind of follow that path. But then when he saw the path you were taking yourself, he thought, okay, I have to fucking tell him now. <laughs> yeah, I think he saw it. And, but he also saw something in me because he said to me, you know, well, I've got to say, I was the only prisoner ever to be released on a Sunday in Australia. I was released on a Sunday morning and Paddy O'Connor, who wasn't working, came and saw me for my release and walked me out of the jail and stood there beside me and I took my shoes off at the, at the front of the jail and I walked down the road barefoot. I was wearing socks, sorry, and, and I was walking down this road and Paddy O'Connor's just looking at me and he goes, Billy, where the fuck do you think you're going? And I said, I'm just going home. 
And he said, come back and get your shoes. I said, no fucking way. They brought me in here and they ain't bringing me back. Wow. And I can, to this day, still hear Paddy O'Connor laughing in my head. I can still hear him laughing at me. And do you mind me asking, like, what brought you into prison and how long you were in there for? Yeah, what brought me in was a um, uh, demanding property with menaces. So I was, uh, I was always fucking hungry as a kid. I was starving. Um, and it didn't matter how I got anything. I, I just... I'd just steal food. I'd break into heaps of houses. I never stole anything but their fridge, <laughs> their contents of their fridge. Sometimes I'd stay in their house and make a bloody big feed and then leave. Um, so I was at a, a, a like a cafe bar type area and I demanded this bloke's cigarettes off him and it became a situation and I just, I just took them. And then I got done with robbery with violence. And then they downgraded the charge to uh, demanding property with menace. And then they said, look, it's a misdemeanor. You're going to go to court. And then when I went to court, the judge turned around and said, where do you live? And I said, on the streets. And he goes, have you got a carer or any family? I said, no, I've got no one. And he says, oh, we might have to give you six, 12 months in jail just to uh, give you a home and food and board. And, that. and I said, what? And he said, well, yeah, six months. So that was my first stint. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because if you're homeless and you, you have no direction in your life, you're not sure where is it going, and you know you're looking down every road at a crossroads, and then it, like jail is one way, and at the time maybe it seems bad, but maybe for a lot of people who are in that situation, it can turn their life around a little bit. No? Oh, should you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, it can. It, it turned my life completely upside down. And look, I, people say, oh, were you scared straight? No, I wasn't scared straight. I was fucking scared, no doubt about it, but I wasn't scared straight. I think what happened with my my case is like jail is a revolving door for a lot of people. They go in, they come back. They go out, they come back. They go in and out. And it's just I see the same fucking people. Like you, they just get released after two years and then they'd be back again, you know, and I'd be like, fucking hell. And And for me... I, and I think it hit me when Patty O'Connor said, be a better man. And I just went, you know what? This, I've got to do something. This is bullshit. You know, I've, I've got to change. I don't want to be like my old man. I don't want to have that shit. You know, I, I just want to, I want to change. I want to be somebody. Yeah. And, you know, that's the kind of motto I've always kind of lived by in relation to my dad, because my dad wasn't the nicest man sometimes and, you know, drank and gambled and, you know, was in, abusive my mother. And I always said to myself, you know, if there's one thing, you know, I, I'm going to learn from my dad, it's not to be like that, to be different with your kids. And, you know, and you don't have to be a saint or anything. But the point is, try and be a nice person and try and have a bit of compassion and try and not let those demons overtake you, you know. And it, it is a thing that so many people fall into the same path their mother or father went down. And, you know. It, it's a generational thing, too, because if you can change who you are based on your parents, what they were like, and become more positive and better, well, of course, there's hope then for your children, isn't there? Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, my, my son is better than I will ever be, and, and that's an attribute to me. I, I, I sit back, and I'm so proud of that because that's my wife and I have done that with our children, my son and my daughter, are, are miles ahead of, of us, and, and they're better people. and and. I'm just so proud to be able to have done that. I've got rid of all the shit and I've held it back. And like you said just before, you mentioned the demons. 
the one thing in my life that I'm so proud of is I keep the demons at bay. That is the biggest thing for me is I think to myself, I defeat the demons. That's me. I defeat them. And if I can defeat them, they're not going to infiltrate me, my wife, my kids, my family, anybody. And if I think of like sometimes, uh, you know, people say, oh, do you ever think about the teacher or your grandfather that abused? No, I don't. Fuck them. I'm not putting any of that. They're not renting any shit in my space, in my head. I don't want to know about them. Yes, I'll tell my story, but it's a story. And a million, billion people on the planet and that have died have been abused. I'm not just the only one. I mean, I've just got my story, you know? Yeah, of course, of course. And, you know, the thing about it is, like, I always think of this word, the word forgiveness. So you you can forgive people who've done things against you in the past. It doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean you have to embrace them or hug them. But the forgiveness is not for them. It's for you. Because when you, like, you can take the road that I don't give a damn, fuck these people, I'll never forgive them. But the problem is, if you take that road and it keeps that anger inside you, that's where it's bad. It's, it doesn't matter what you say or do to them. It's how it affects you. So I always believe that, you know, the forgiveness is for you, not for them. Yeah, I, look, I, I tend to agree with you in part because I, I forgive myself. I don't forgive them. I forgive myself. I forgive myself for blaming myself. I forgive myself for not being strong enough. I forgive myself for the, all these things. But that's my own forgiveness. As far as they're concerned, I don't forgive, I don't forget, and they're dead to me. So they're just, they're nothing. They're, they're an absolute nothing, you know. And, and to be honest with you, my mother apparently lives less than 10 kilometers away from where I am. <laughs> so I'd have no idea. I, if I ran, I, I could run over in the street, I wouldn't know, <laughs> you know. It's really interesting that when that saying, forgive and forget, what that's generally accepted as is to forgive someone and forget the problems you had with them. But you can also look at it from the other side. You can forgive them, but forget they ever existed. <laughs> that's exactly right. So true. So true. Yeah. So so then, you know, once you came out of prison and you, you know, you started to look at life differently and stuff, how did you get into you know, uh, private investigative work and uh, like how did you change your life and how did you know what you wanted to do? I've got to say, just before I went to prison, obviously I was, I was living on the streets. I was a kid. I didn't know where to go. I, I, I wasn't the average street kid because I'd sneak into shopping centers and hide in the shopping centers till they were closed and I'd have a bed, clothing and food. <laughs> I'd do that quite a lot. You know, I slept in the roof of bowling alleys, pubs, you name it, I slept in these areas. Um, the cinemas at night, you know, you go to watch a movie, I'd sneak in, and then people would come up and down and look, you know, for the torches, make sure everybody's left. But, you know, when one place they never never ever search is the stage where the curtains went across. Oh, yeah. And that's where yeah. I was. <laughs> that's the only place they never searched. They searched all the aisles, all the chairs and everything, never found me. So I used to stay there. <laughs> I'd have a great time, really. Um but then I became I, – I needed to be with kids my own age. I really did. I, I, I craved to be around kids and have fun. And I, um, I stole a school uniform from a clothesline um, and I just put the uniform on and I walked into this school and saw some kids my age and started talking to them. And I said, oh, what grade are you in? And they said, oh, grade 11. And I said, oh, yeah, me too. I'm a new kid. And they go, okay. And what's your first class? And I said, oh. 
uh, I think it's maths. What's yours? And they go, yeah, yeah, we're doing maths too. I said, well, what maths are you? And they go, oh, we're 11A. Where are you? I said, oh, I'm 11A. <laughs> and they go, oh, come with us. You know. <laughs> so I end up in this classroom and I walk into this classroom and the teacher would go, oh, I didn't know I had a new student. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, I'm a new student. My name's, you know, and they go, yeah, yeah, cool. No worries. Go grab the seat over there. Nice to meet you. And I'd be like, oh, this is great. The moment I walked into that classroom, this blonde-haired, green-eyed girl, all of, I don't know, 15, 14, 15, turned to her best friend and said, I'm going to marry that boy one day. Wow. That was her exact words the first time I ever met her. And we've been together now, married for 35 years, I suppose. Wow. And no, you weren't found out in the school or the director, no, nobody realized? Yeah. <laughs> Six months I stayed at that school. Six <laughs> months. And then they turned around and they said, the principal come and saw me and the principal called me out. And I said, yeah. And they go, you're not even enrolled in this school. And I said, yeah, I know. They go, well, how, how long have you been here? I said, oh, nearly six months. Get out. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> but you know, the, the horrible thing about that is that I wanted to be educated and he could have had me looked after, but instead he just kicked me out. Yeah. You know, I know. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because people are like, no, no, that's not how things are done. And you go, well, why can't you bend the rules? That's right. Why can't you? Because now you know me a little better. But people are afraid to make those big decisions sometimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, when I left, I took his best student with me. and She was she was gold. <laughs> that's brilliant. And so, you know, like what I love about you is you have, I was reading some things, obviously, about doing the funeral crashing. And some people were saying, oh, you need a certain type of arrogance. I don't think you're arrogant. I think you have this confidence um, and this brazenness. But you're like you're a really pleasant guy and you're friendly and you're sociable. But yet you have the balls to be cocky and arrogant when you need to be, no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, it's uh, a few funerals I've done. They've said, you know, he's a really likable gentleman. He's very likable. He gets the crowd on your side really quick, which I tend to and I like to because if there's any ever any trouble, I need to have the crowd on my side. I, I walk into a funeral like everybody else. I'm mourning. I'm sitting amongst family and friends. And all of a sudden, I stand up and interrupt and go, excuse me, my name's Bill Edgar. I am the coffin confessor. Sit down, shut up or fuck off. The cl my client in the coffin's got something to say, <laughs> you know, wow. and then some people will stand up and say, what are you doing? Get out. And then I'll say, hey, listen, this is your loved one. They've left a message. Do you want to hear it or not? And half the crowd or three quarters of the crowd go, yeah, 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 we want to hear it. And I'm going, great. Don't shoot the messenger. This is what it is. So as soon as you get the crowd on your side laughing. Yeah, of course. I can imagine they want to hear it. Let's get to that in a moment, but I want to ask you, obviously, about being a, a private detective, a private investigator. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, that's a tough enough job in itself, and that eventually led you down this road. But when, when you were a private investigator, I'm sure you must have had some really interesting cases and felt good about some jobs, but then other jobs you feel bad about, no? No, I don't feel bad about anything. No. <laughs> I really don't. I, you know, obviously... You know, you've got empathy and sympathy for people, but there's so many, you know, I've come to love animals more than I love people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's the way it's been. But I've got to say, look, I became a PI, I couldn't read, write or spell until I was 30, okay? I could not do either of those until I was 30 years of age. 
Um, I didn't get my car license until I was 27, 28 or something. And I've been driving since I was 13. So I suppose I've got that more front than Myers. It's a saying they have, you know, but it, I just got to say that the PI work I fell into, again, it was just a job that I created. Yeah, there's PIs out there everywhere, but I created a niche in the PI industry. So what I actually did is uh, when you start out as a PI, and I'll tell you right now, there are only two types of PIs, cops and ex-cops. Okay, that's it. Okay, everybody in Australia, if they're a private investigator, they're an ex-cop or they're a cop retiring, just about to. Um, but what makes a, a good PI is a cop, an ex-cop, and a criminal. And I was never an ex-cop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so what I'll say, as in PI work, is yes, I was very good at it because I could do stuff that a lot of people wouldn't, couldn't, or were too scared to do, and. If a person phoned me up and said, oh, Bill, you're a PI. Can you follow my wife? I think she's having an affair. I'd turn around and say, mate, you've called a PI. Seriously? She's having an affair. Fuck off. I don't want to do it. You know, and then a woman would phone me and say, oh, I think my husband's having an affair. Yo, he fucking is. If you're going to go to the extent of getting a PI, he is. All right? So I wouldn't do those jobs. Yeah, I, I did a couple of little ones and then it just became monotonous. And I just, if you're going to get a PI, I'm telling you now, they're having an affair. A lot of PI work um, nowadays is like honey traps and, you know, there's female PI investigators and the, the yeah, wife or the husband exactly. already know what's happening, but they just want confirmation. But then you're going to spend the fortune confirming what you already know. Exactly. And, and most of the time it's for settlements or insurance payouts or shit like that. And I'm not interested. So what I did is I created a, a niche market in two areas. The first area was I went to a... Uh, a uh, hotel chain, uh, there was a meeting of these hotel chains, uh, executive managers and all these people. And uh, I walked around the room and I said to these people, I said, I bet in six weeks I could infiltrate your business and find out who's stealing from your business and what they're saying about you. And I said this to probably half a dozen people and one of them caught me out and he goes, yeah, hey, you're on. I'm the CEO of the largest resorts chain in Australia and I want you to come down to the Gold Coast Surface Paradise and I'm like oh fuck yeah I live there okay let's go <laughs> and he says I want to know who's stealing all the shit from the kitchen and I said what shit and he said food and I said yeah no worries I said do you want to hire me as a kitchen hand and he goes yeah okay I'll hire you as a kitchen hand six week contract and I said no worries he says what's your what's your fee I said 10 grand straight off the bat 10 grand that's all I said I didn't even think about it he said, no worries. He said, is that with proof or without? And I said, if I don't get proof, you don't pay me. And he said, oh, you're on. Six weeks, no pay. Yeah, excellent. And I said, no worries. So I go in as a kitchen hand and I'm meeting all these people and I'm washing dishes and I'm fucking around with people. And then it was probably, I don't know, two weeks into it. And I said to this like uh, security guard, I said to the security guard, it was about 11.30 at night. And I said, fuck, I'm hungry. And he goes, come back at 12. And I said, oh, yeah? I said, you got food? And he says, yeah, yeah. And he says, we'll just have a feed. And I said, oh, sweet. No worries. Well, fuck, I went back at 12 and there was two security guards and myself and another kitchen staffer and we're in this fucking deep fucking cool room eating salmon, caviar, you name it, we're fucking eating it. <laughs> They're wrapping shit up 
and they're putting it down the chute or putting it in a trolley and taking it down to the fucking cars and getting rid of it. And I'm like, oh, this is great. So I'd be recording all this. And then I'd be going, oh, what's the, what's the general manager like? He's a bit of a prick, isn't he? I hate working here with that prick. And they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, his wife's screwing Tony over at security at another resort. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> so I'd get all this information. And then probably five, six weeks, close to the end of the term, I, I'd say to the people in the kitchen, I'd just throw all my shit in the sink and I'd go, this place is fucked. I quit. I'm getting out. So I'd leave. I'd just walk out. So all the staff there think I just got the shits and left. So they wouldn't know anything. Then I'd send my report to the general manager and he'd, he'd pay me and I'd have the money and then he'd have the report. And what happened afterwards, I didn't give a fuck. But what he did, he sent me to Cairns to another resort, then sent me to Melbourne to another resort, then Sydney. And then I had all these six-week gigs wow. at all these resorts. And then he'd tell other resort managers. The funny thing is that you're in the kitchen eating the caviar and salmon with them, but you're the one getting paid to do it. <laughs> Damn right there. Yeah. And, and at other resorts, I was working in the cleaning area because the sheets were going missing or linen was going missing or towels. You know, in another resort, I was working in security because someone was stealing from the guests. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it was a niche job. And I still do a bit of that today. <coughs> Very interesting work. I mean, and, you know, you meet lots of interesting people. And then when you were a PI as well, like, did you ever do jobs that were actually, you know, dangerous to you? Or, you know, you thought, okay, this is too much because... You're maybe you're going slightly undercover and you're messing with the wrong people. Nah, I love doing that. It didn't worry me. Okay. Never worried me. I mean, I'd I, I do certain jobs that, yeah, people were too scared to do. But I mean, I was being employed by lawyers, barristers, you know, accountants, professionals. And at the end of the day, a lot of the times, and they thought I was just uh, crazy, I'd expose who I was to the actual person I was investigating. Wow. You know, just out of pure, pure hatred for him or pure delight that I busted them. I wouldn't give a shit. Never cared. I'd say, you're going to the place that I went to as a kid, and it's worse today than when I was a kid. Have a good time. Wow. And, you know, you mentioned there, obviously, that a lot of PIs are cops or ex-cops. So because you weren't and you were, you know, in their eyes, maybe an ex-criminal, did, did you get a lot of flack from them? Or I can't imagine them assisting you too much. I never told them who I was or where I was. <laughs> I'd get the information I needed first. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them think I'm an ex-cop. Okay, okay, yeah, they just assume. Never assume. Never assume, no. So then, you know, obviously from the PI work, you kind of, I suppose, accidentally discovered this other market of the funeral confessions. And I know I was reading your first client, Graham. So tell us about how that kind of came about and how it, brought about the idea of doing this more yeah so i uh, i was working in um I'm, I'm in the finance sector of pi work now so I, I investigate debts and the sale of debts and insurance and all that type of stuff and i was investigating a matter for graham and he was he had terminal cancer um to be honest with you he was a nice guy but he wasn't a mate or anything i was just working for him uh but i got to like him and I got to like him in a very short time. And, uh, you know, we started talking about death, the afterlife, as you do. You know, someone's dying and they're scared and they're talking about, you know, I wonder what it's like and all this. And I'm like, well, I don't know, mate. You know, and then I'd say to him, 
have you got anything, you know, you want to say in that? And he'd say, yeah. I'd say, well, why don't you do your own eulogy? Why don't you get out there and do something? And he said, no, you know what, Bill, I've been to plenty of funerals where the eulogy's not played. The, the family view it first and they go, oh, fuck that. We're not going to play that at a funeral. So they don't do it. And I said, oh, okay. And I'll tell you now, it was a fucking joke. It was just a joke. I, I said to him, well, you know what? I could always crash your funeral for you. Wow. And it was, yeah, yeah, a bit of laughter. And then three weeks later, I get this text on my phone. Hey, Bill, I'm going to uh, take you up on the offer. You're going to crash my funeral. And if you come and see me, I'll give you 10 grand and I'll tell you what you're going to do. And I was like, are you fucking serious? Hey. But I had to go and see him. I had to know more. I wanted to, I was like, I was so intrigued. And then he said to me, um, he said, look, he said, my best mate is uh, been abusing my wife and trying to crack onto her having sex while I'm lying here in my deathbed. I can see up the hall. He's trying, you know, he's patting her on the ass. He's trying to give her cuddles and he's fucking, he's infiltrating my wife and family. What, I need help. And, and honestly, Graham was a big man, but he, he withered away to fuck all. And he was dying. He couldn't even get out of bed. He was, he was fucked. He just needed some help. But I needed proof. I couldn't just go and attack this bloke without any proof. So I said to Graham, can I set up a camera above your bed, head, you know, and put another private one in the lounge somewhere and that? And he said, yeah, yeah, go for it. Do what you got to do. And I did. And then I, I'd left. And I got this text from Graham. 40 minutes later, oh, he's here. Okay, no worries. So about three hours later, I go back and I look at the footage on the cameras and I'm like, oh, this cunt's gone. You're kidding me. I couldn't believe what he was doing. Yeah, so I said to Graham, yeah, you're on, mate. I said, you're on. What do you want me to do? His wife wasn't, like, she wasn't reciprocating. Did she not tell him to stop or what What was the situation there? Yeah, she wasn't reciprocating at all and she didn't want him in the house, but he just intruded. She was she was more fearful, wow. but she didn't want to make a scene in front of Graham. She wanted to stay strong and she wanted her, him to know, you know, and she often told him, oh, he's such a bastard and why is he always here and stuff like that, you know. And it was Graham that turned around and he said, look, when my so-called best mate's doing the eulogy, about 30, 60 seconds in, I want you to stand up and tell him to sit down, shut up or fuck off. How did he take it? <laughs> he slithered out like a little rat. He fucking ran away. He didn't like it at all and I didn't give a fuck. So I, I told him. But at least he, he got to hear me say that he was a, a prick and trying to have sex with uh, Graham's wife while he was on his deathbed. And everybody there was it was like, what the fuck? You know, who is this prick? And, and it was great. And then he just sort of ran off. And Graham's instructions to me were, if my wow. brother, his wife, and their daughter is at my funeral, I want you to tell them to stand up and fuck off. And if they don't, I want you to drag them out. I thought to myself, okay, no worries. I said, why? You know, and he said, I haven't seen them in 30 years. Why the fuck would they come and pay their respects now when they could have seen me when I was alive? And they owe me money and they've never paid me. Really? I said, okay, no worries. So when I attended that funeral, Graham's funeral, like everybody, you stand out before you go into the church, you mingle a bit, people come up to you and go, oh, how do you know him? How do you know me, I was the other way. I was going, oh, who's that guy over there? And they go, oh, you know, that's Graham's uncle. And I go, okay, who's that guy? Oh, that's Graham's brother. I haven't seen him for a long time. And I go, is that his wife? Yeah, yeah. And their daughter, yeah. So I'd already picked him out. So my job was basically so easy. Yeah, you knew who it yeah. was. Yeah. So as soon as I went in and did that, it was gone. I can imagine, like, when you go into these chapels or churches or wherever they are, there's a certain amount of, like, adrenaline and kind of 
you have this freedom as well because you have no connection with any of them. So you're kind of like a paid actor in some respects and you don't have these chains holding you down about offending people. No, that's right. And I have no care or concern for those left behind. It's all about the person in the coffin. So I couldn't give a fuck about them. I, I, I'm able to stand up and let rip what was what was written and I, I read aloud. I put the uh, letter back in the envelope. I place it on the coffin and I walk out. I don't even know if the funeral continues. I fuck off. I've done my job. You know, has anyone ever tried to, you know, manhandle you, get you out of the church? Because I'm sure some people will say, get this fucker out of here now. I'm sure that's happened, no? <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple in the church say that, but you just say, I just sort of say, hey, listen, you don't want to go there. Sit down. <laughs> you don't want to do this here. <laughs> you know, and I'll get away with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I don't want to draw blood over the coffin. <laughs> but then at a, at a, at a gravesite, um, whilst the uh, the coffin's about to go down, yeah, I had a couple of blokes come up to me and say, look, you better fuck off. And I said, no. Nah. I said, I've got a job to do and I'll be doing it. And they said, not here, you won't. And then a couple of the other boys around the crowd said, hey, leave him alone. Let's hear what he has to say first. If we like what he has to say, he can leave with his legs. If we don't, he'll leave without them. Right. And I sort of looked at all these boys. Yeah, and I looked at all these boys and I said, sweet. I, I personally don't give a fuck. It's your friend. So I'm about to read what he said, okay? So if you want to shoot the messenger, shoot me. Don't take my legs. Shoot me and make sure you kill me. And they were all laughing and carrying on. And then I'd read aloud what the, the bloke said and then they'd go, oh, fuck. And, and I've got to say... Those people that truly knew and loved that man, they already fucking knew yeah. what he had to say. If you truly knew, and yeah, you know what I mean, deep down in their hearts, they knew. So they knew it was the truth. And then some people go, oh, have you got any proof that you met with so-and-so? Yeah, I've got proof. I fucking record every meeting I'm with. I have a contract with them. And they fucking paid me 10 grand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You didn't give me 10 grand for nothing. I'm happy. Why would I be here otherwise? <laughs> I'm not just going to rock up to any fucking funeral. It reminds me of um, there was a funeral in Ireland there a few years ago where the guy uh, died. But before he died, he recorded um, himself screaming, let me out of the box. What am I doing in here? This kind of stuff. So oh, yeah, yeah. He I wanted that. to shock the people. And I mean, when, when it was played, there was just laughter and everything because the people were probably going, yeah, that's fucking John. That's him. That's exactly his character. He's the kind of guy you do that. So. When you come, you're speaking for like for the dead, and you're speaking on behalf of their friends. So they see you as a vessel through which he's speaking, don't they? Oh, absolutely, and that's it. Now I'm actually there for the dead person, and nowadays I'm going to viewings and I'm putting you know items in their coffins for them, or I'm pinpricking the body to make sure they don't move because people are petrified about being buried alive. Absolutely petrified. So they asked me to yeah. take a pin and pinprick their body. And if there's any movement, get somebody, you know. Um, and, yeah, I'll do that. Would you do that Would you do that in, in the morgue or in the funeral? No, I do it at the viewing. Okay. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, so I'll go to the viewing and I, they've asked me. Would you do it very secretly, no? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't do it with any family or friends around. I always say, oh, can I have a moment with a, with a client, you know, or, I'd say I'm a I'm an ex-employee or a best friend or someone they haven't seen for a long time. Can I have a little moment? They go, yeah, yeah, no worries. And I'll record myself <laughs> pinpricking the body. So, yeah. 
Wow. I, I can imagine if someone walked in, they'd be like, is that his fucking acupuncturist? Or what's the story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I make sure nobody sees me because that would be a bit uh, a bit hard to sort of tell them, oh, you know what? My dad asked me to just pinprick him. And if, he's, if he moves, I'm supposed to get somebody, you know. <laughs> it's like a weird funeral fetish. <laughs> People ask me to put their mobile phones or alcohol or pictures in their coffin with them, which I've done, you know. Wow. Um, and now I'm even going to homes and I'm sweeping their homes before the, their family and friends find certain items that they don't want their family and friends to find, like sex, toys, drugs, money. Nazi bunkers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. They want to get it removed. I'll remove it for them. And then they're, they're happy in that, you know, so removing the browser, the web browser from their computer. Yeah, because that is people have so many things they want to hide, but they don't realize maybe that, you know, they're going to pass away sooner than they realize. So the other story there I, I once thought was about the gay biker. That was quite interesting. Yeah, that was the one I was saying that the bikers come up to me. The two boys came up to me and asked me to leave, but the others truly knew. Okay, um, that was okay, okay. Yeah, so he, he outed himself as being gay in front of all his biker mates and he wanted his bike uh, buried with him in the, you know above the coffin yeah and then his bike uh, his bike followed him down so yeah so most of them took it pretty well didn't they oh yeah they took it very well the funniest thing about that is that um, he had a sense of humor as well his name was rod um, and he did have a sense of humor what he said is that um, he said, look, Bill, he said, I want you to say that I'm gay and that I've been having an affair with a guy named Andy and because I know there's going to be five Andys there and they're all going to fucking look at each other. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> so he had a sense and you of didn't say which Andy yeah. it was. No, none. And it was funny because one of them stood up at the back and sort of made himself known and everyone sort of looked at him and he went, hey, don't fucking look at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then... The story about you, about the guy who wanted to be uh, lay on his stomach. You know, that guy hasn't died yet. Oh, really? He, he has not died. Yeah, that's a request. And I've got a few of those. But this request is uh, the gentleman wants me to go to the viewing, strip him naked, turn him upside down, and open the other end of the coffin, the casket, to show his ass, and it says, kiss this on his ass. <laughs> So when all the family and friends come to view the body, all they're going to see is this ass who'd kiss it. <laughs> In most of the funerals, people are hypocrites. And the, the whole idea of the church itself is hypocrisy. So you'll get people that never go to church, but are always straight back there for religious events. So you must really come in and shake it all up. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I love nothing more than going there and, and seeing the crocodile tears and the fucking people that are all vultures. And then I do what I do. But I can hear, as I'm leaving, I can hear the crowd erupt and go, yeah, beautiful, that's exactly him, you know. Or, or some people go, yeah, they should have fucked off. I don't even know why they were here in the first place. So, yeah, there's a lot of good in, in what I do too. I mean, yeah, okay, I shock a lot of people and a lot of people say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But you know what? It's their fucking funeral. It's not yours. If you don't like it, fuck off. The one as well there where, you know, you, you crashed the will reading and, and the, the people were like gloating and about what they were going to get and they were in her room taking stuff. Yeah, that was just horrendous. I mean, you know, I, I visit this lady in palliative care and, and a daughter and a son are fighting at the end of the bed. She's still fucking alive, coherent, and can understand everything. 
and they're fighting about who's taking the car. Wow. And who's getting the fucking rings off her hands and how do we access the bank accounts and all this shit. And I was just like, you're fucking kidding me. And then I said to the lady, I said, you know, I said, no wonder you want a fucking new will done. You know, so we made uh, a, a doctor came in, made a sound of mind. We had a barrister and a lawyer and we got a new will read, uh, written up. And then I found out when the will was being read and I was there on that day and I presented the new will. And I was wrapped because I walked in and just slapped the will to the to the lawyer. I said, look, you've got to stop. This is the latest will. Uh, you've accepted it. So therefore, you've got to stop and uh, investigate this will. And everyone at the table, they got fucking nothing. But I just, yeah, I basically just walked out. I was happy as. Wow. And so, you know, obviously, there were all of these crazy stories and you know, these funerals and your own life, you know, which is a, is a, a really interesting story. You decided then to, you know, to write the Coffin Confessor, the book. Was that something that, you know, took you a long time or was it something you just kind of jumped into? No, I, I didn't decide to write anything. I wasn't going to do anything. I was just doing my job and just going about my own thing, you know. And uh, I, I, got, uh, I got asked to go on a TV show. Um, it was Good Morning Britain. And, um, yeah, yeah. So they said, I'll go on the show. And I was on that show, like, I don't know, an hour after that show, I had 4,000 requests for funerals, 4,000. By the end of the week, I had like 40,000. And that was just from the UK. Yeah, it was ridiculous. People that are still alive that were just wanting me to, you know, take their notes, take their money, and just, if they die, I've got to crash their funeral. And that was pre-COVID, right? So I could travel anywhere back then. And then it was, a, I don't know, it was one evening and I was sitting here and I was just uh, talking with my wife what we are going to do the next day. And I get this phone call from three publishers, um, Simon & Schuster, um, Penguin, and another one. And they said, oh, we want to, you know, you've got to write a book, you've got to write a book. We've just heard all these stories and you've got to write a book. And I'm like, no, not interested. And then uh, this guy was persistent, uh, Brandon, his name was. He's from Penguin. And he said, mate, he said, look, we'll look after you. He says, you'll get your money. Uh, I'll even get you a ghostwriter. We'll help you out. We'll do all this. And I said, you know what, Brandon? I said, it's just a story. Are you really that interested? He said, I'm not more interested in the coffin. Says, I want to know about you. And you've got an interesting story and I want to know it. And I said, okay, no worries. I said, okay, let's do it. I'll write a book. Fuck it. I'll write a book. Um, and it took, say, it took a year or just under a year uh, with my ghostwriter. Uh, but he basically formatted the book for me, which was great. I wrote most of it. He put in a little bit of things that I couldn't understand or, or help me out with a bit of you know, stuff. But, yeah, it took, it took a little while. But uh, didn't it take off as soon as it came out? Holy shit, it went nuts. So, yeah. And now, like, obviously, you're in talks or, you know, for it to turn into a movie and a TV show and everything. So how is that going? Is is that something that's going to happen or it's up in the air? Uh, look, I signed a deal with Paramount Pictures um, and they've spoken to certain, you know, crew and, and staff and everything. They love the idea, the concept. And as far as I know, there's a movie being made. Um, there's a reality show, there's a documentary, the book, obviously, and, uh, you know, a few talk shows. So whatever comes, comes. I'm wrapped either way. I'll just sit back and, 
you know, take what comes. So I'm happy. Why not? So obviously when you were in the UK and you had all of these people requesting that, so you're thinking, even without COVID, you're thinking, how the fuck am I going to go to all these countries and do this? So is it something then that you get other people to work with you in other countries and you teach them or do you know what I mean? Has that happened or is it just still you? It's still me, but I still get requests from around the world. And I think to myself, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of big companies come to me and say, look, you've got a franchise. Um, this is going global. You've got to, you know, there's so many people that this could do and benefit and you need to be, you can't be everywhere at once. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Um, but I, I, I sort of, it's one of those things. It's something I've created and I don't want to let go at the moment. You know what I mean? I, I just sort of think, uh, do I really want to let it go yet? Or do I just keep it going and, and I do what I can do and fulfill what I can fulfill? And at the moment, it's working out at the moment. But um, you know what? The book just got released in uh, Poland, China, and Thailand. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to get on board and say, oh, you know, we need a coffee confessor over here and there. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to happen, obviously. And I do see, you know, sometimes people send – got thousands of resumes that people send me for a job. But I also note some people are trying to set up the coffee confessor and they'll come to me and they'll say, look, you know, I've just set this business up. How can I start? Well, fuck me! How did you even set the business up? You know, it's all <laughs> <laughs> basically. First off, it's, it's patented and trademarked, so you know the whole concept is protected. But at the same time, if you want to do it, do it. Have a great time. Try and try and get to it. But if you've got to ask me how to do it, you're not fit for the job. If you're stealing somebody's idea and then calling them and saying, "How do I get it up and running?" That's a bit fucking cheeky, anyway, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cheeky, but I don't know if they got the the mouth to go and do what they no, what I do. No, but exactly. anyway, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, but I think I've got to put some some training in place for them. Yeah, no, I, because it's funny here. I'm I like I'm from Ireland, but I live in Spain, and in Spain they have this thing that they do with uh, debt collection agencies. They don't do it as much anymore, but they used to do it up to up maybe five or ten years ago, where if you owed someone money. They would send these guys uh, to your house. And when you come out of the house to go to the supermarket, the guys are holding this small coffin, like a cardboard thing, and they're dressed as funeral undertakers. And they follow you around and they they keep saying, this person owes money, this person owes money. And you're like, fucking get away from me. Leave me alone. And, and they won't leave you alone. And they, they come dressed as clowns. And they, I can't remember the name now. They come dressed as clowns and all kinds of characters that will draw attention to you. And it's all to get you to pay the money. And it's ridiculous. And it's like, you know, people could say it's harassment, but it's also quite funny. I'd be wearing a big shirt saying, I'm not paying these fuckers. Yeah, but imagine like someone following you around with a coffin, two or three guys, and saying he owes us money. That's something as well that I saw you kind of have been involved with debt collections. And you saw that there's a dark side to that too, isn't there? Oh, it was a very dark side. I, I'm still investigating matters today, you know, with regards to debt. So what I can tell you in Australia, and it probably happens all over the world, is um, the banks will, will loan money, and if you don't pay it back, the banks will sell the debt. But what they won't tell you, what the banks will not tell you, is that they actually insure the debt. So they've already got their money. Yeah. But what they do is they sell the debt, but they're not selling the debt. They're selling you because they, they're selling the data. They don't want you on their system, so they fuck you off. They sell the data. So if anybody ever comes back to the bank and says, hey, was he a client of yours? They'd look on their data and go, nope, never. Prove it. 
Well, he's not on a data system. I saw recently this guy on Facebook or somewhere, and he was talking about, he said, when when that company sells your debt, he said, you, you know, you think, oh, my credit history is okay now because I've settled with the debt collection agency. But he said, it's not true. He says, not true at all. And he said, no. he said, they're just selling on that data and that debt. But he said, you're never really free from it. And you might have to pay again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a debt can get sold 10, 15 times. And especially if you agree to do a part payment, and if you start paying that part payment and then stop paying, another debt collection thinks, oh, there's an opportunity there because he did at least start paying. Yeah. You know, and that's how they see it. But at the same time, I, I'm the factual investigator, so I need facts. So what I do is I go back to the bank and I go, hey, listen, you sold or assigned the debt. They use the word assigned in Australia, so they're not allowed to say sold. It's the same fucking word, signed or sold. So I'll ask them how much they sold the debt for, and they'll go, oh, no, that's private information. And I'll go, but it was a $50,000 debt. And they go, no, private information. And I'll go, okay. So I'll go to the underwriters, and I'll say to the underwriters, 50 grand debt, how much did you pay out? Oh, about 90. So you paid the bank 90 fucking thousand dollars for a $50,000 debt, yeah. So I'll go to the debt collection company. How much did you purchase the debt for? Oh, we're not going to tell you. So I'll subpoena the fuckers, and then I find out they paid $14 for the debt. And they're going after my client for fifty thousand. Wow! So then I'll pay them fourteen dollars plus ten percent. Tell them to fuck off. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's clever. Yeah, <laughs> it's just about knowing how the system works, isn't it? Because the average Joe doesn't know. They they're thinking, "Fuck! I owe I owe them fifty. Maybe they'll take twenty grand settlement, and they've only paid fourteen dollars." That's right. You got to look at it this way, and I, I say it all the time. Systems were designed and set up to fuck over the average person, okay? That's why they're set up and designed that way, okay? Now, the debt collection industry is no different. It's a trillion-dollar fucking business, okay? Now, I own a company in Australia, a business called Freedom from Debt Collectors, and I give people freedom in a way that if they got a $50,000 debt, my fee is 10% of the debt, so I'll get five grand, and they'll walk away and never pay another fucking cent. Will their debt ever be recorded or taken off? No. Will I go to court and try and get their name taken off? Yes. But will it get re removed? No, because it's a fucking different entity that owns the recording. So if you default, the debt collector just defaults you. But when your name goes on that listing of a bad creditor, well, that's a different company altogether. So you, then you've got to fight that company then. It's a nightmare. Uh, if you've been defaulted and been uh, on this list, that list is a database, and databases are worth millions of dollars. So they're not going to take your name off. It's not about you having a debt. It's about you being on the data system. And you know what's interesting, what's really come to light over the last few years with conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff is the straw man theory. You know this? Have you seen this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you probably know well about yes. this. Yeah, I have. Yeah, that's quite yeah. interesting, isn't it, that we are all just entities. That's all we are. And, and, well, I say these days we're all just data. That's all we are. We're just data. Yeah. So nothing gets sold. There's no actual money. It's all data. You're just a data. That's all you are. And I'll tell you another thing. Yeah, I don't know if you have it over there or even in Ireland or England, is that you can check your credit score. Yeah, yes, yes. Right? Yes. Have you heard of yeah. that before? <clears throat> yeah. To see if you can get finance, you check your credit score. You know, the biggest con about that is you put your details in to check your credit score, <laughs> yes. you're on their fucking data. Yes. It doesn't matter what the fucking score is. They could give you the best score in the world. It doesn't fucking matter. They've got you now because they've got your data. 
And once they get a million people on their data, that fucking million people are worth $10 million to them. And people go, oh, how's it worth $10 million? Because they fucking sell the data. <laughs> and not just to one company. They sell it to thousands. Yes, yes. I remember because in, in Spain here, I work as an English teacher as well. And I remember working in one or two debt collection agencies. And uh, I'd say to them, uh, like, for example, Vodafone or Orange or whatever companies would sell the debt to the debt collection agency. And I'd say, yeah, but like if someone owes $20 or 20 euros, I mean, are they going to chase them for that? And they say, yeah, but it's it's when 100 people owe that or 1,000 people owe that. So they sell right. this bulk data and then, you know, they, they get a lawyer in and they go through all the cases very quickly and the people don't fight it, you know. And that's the thing. See, debts aren't sold individually. They're sold in pools. So you have 50 people that owe $20 or 30 or $50. And it's sold in a pool to a debt collector for, say, five grand. You'll never know that your debt was only sold for two cents. No, no. You'll never fucking know. Never. Because it's sold in a pool. And then you go back to the telcos. Like you said before, we got a telco in Australia. And the biggest fraud in the world is, you know, you have people getting fraudulent emails or phone calls and they're scammers from Nigeria or wherever the fuck they are. They're even from Australia. You know, the biggest problem with that is telcos worldwide sell fucking phone numbers yes they sell the fucking bundle of phone numbers to these people these collection agencies these fucking call centers these hotspots purchase fucking worldwide telephone numbers from telcos so they're fucking screwing you as well yeah i always say that like you know in each country you have different kinds of gangsters but for sure in spain here the telecommunications companies are the biggest gangsters because you know they'll call you and you'll be like Hola, or like who's this whatever and they'll be like is this john and the natural reaction is no this is simon or whatever and they don't even know who you are yeah. all they have is a number and then they will slowly try <laughs> and filter information and you're like fuck off who of is this like you know and they're from a yeah. company a reputable company so to speak that's right and and every government in the world if they want to stop fucking fraudulent activity amongst their people ban the telcos from selling numbers it's crazy, isn't Simple. it? It's crazy. But they won't do it. And I mean, I can see for you as a PI, obviously, the work with the coffin confessor and everything. But I can see that obviously being a very in-demand sector as well, debt collection, because, you know, as we said, there's data and data being collected. So more people are in debt, and especially with COVID and that pandemic, because whenever there's something like that, there is more debt mm. and there's more debt collection agencies. And so oh, absolutely. you can see the data mountain yeah. growing and growing. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the worst part about the, the debt collection industry, and it happens in England and, and America, is that the biggest and largest debt collection companies in the world own the finance companies that give you the loans out. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's even like these fintech companies now, and I know there's one company here in Spain and I can't remember them, but they do that kind of credit score. And then they tell you what companies can give you loans. They because do. they fucking own That's the companies. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a fucking scam. It, 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 it's like I said, systems are designed and set up for you to fail. And, and that's what you'll do. You'll fail if you fight them. So never fight them. You know, just basically what you can do. And I say this to everybody. If you're being chased by a debt collector, factual evidence that they bought the debt, or factual evidence that you owe them the debt. If you get that factual evidence, great, pay them. But I do guarantee you won't get it. You will not get it because they haven't fucking got it. Yeah, it's where to look 
and what information to ask for, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah be smarter. Be smart. Yeah. So I, I'm going to let you go in a sec, but I just want to ask you one last thing there. I see, which is really interesting to me as well. You have that Facebook page, The Lost Boys of TSS. And like it was for students like you who had, you know, suffered sexual abuse and everything. So that has quite a large following and everything. Is that something through your work and through the Coffin confession, Confessions that people come to you as well and say, oh, man, thanks for your story. It inspired me. Yeah. So what happened is, is I've been caught a liar for years by the school and the church that I wasn't abused. and. A mate of mine who was a police officer and he played for Australia Rugby rugby League, uh, Peter Jackson, he was also abused and he killed himself. But, but the school paid him out $250,000. After he died, they gave that to his wife, right? Wow. Um, and then I came along and I said, hey, listen, I was abused too and this is what happened. And they said, oh, you're a liar. And for years, I kept going back to them saying, look, this is what happened to me. They said, you're a liar. And then all of a sudden, Zuckerberg started this thing called Facebook. And I went, you know what? Yeah, I'm starting a Facebook page. So I called it Lost Boy of TSS because that was me. I'm the Lost Boy of TSS. So I started naming all the teachers that fucked, fucked around with boys and molested boys. And I put all their names and everything on there. <laughs> and the church and the school came back to me and they said, are we going to sue you? And I said, sue me. And they didn't. And then the, the, the head of the church says, are we going to have you arrested? I said, oh, arrest me. They didn't. And it's been 11 years and I'm still naming the abusers. I'm still going through court and I'm still at trial and they're still calling me a liar and I'm still naming them. And yet they can't ban the page. They can't get rid of all the information because now I've brought 133 boys that were abused at the school forward. It's madness, isn't it? To do the right thing, all they had to do was admit what went wrong and that was it. We're sorry. We're going to do better. But no, they had to keep calling me a liar and I had to keep proving them wrong. And then boy after boy would come forward and go, yeah, I was abused too and this is what happened. So I'd put their story up and then it just went nuts. Brilliant. Fair play to you. I mean, that's brilliant. But And, and you know, no better man to do it. Like you have the balls to do it because it's people like you that kind of inspire these people to come forward as well and make them feel braver because maybe they're not sure how to go about it. And they're thinking, oh, I'm going to face legal repercussions. But it's great to see that, you know, you can push them in the right direction and say, fuck it, name them, you know. And that's the other thing. I, I used to say to my wife even, I'd say, you never seen men coming out and saying they got abused. Are they too scared? Or is it, well, I don't get it. Like, do they not want to tell their story? Is it, is it a weak thing to do? I'm telling you now, I'm one of the hardest men you'll ever fucking meet. And I was fucking raped, molested and abused as a child. I'm not, I'm not feared to say that. What I'm feared of is allowing these fucking perpetrators freedom. That's what I hate, is knowing that they still get protected from the church and the school. That pisses me off, you know. How dare they be protected? What, what, why should they be protected? For the, for the sanity of a school? A fucking school? No way. No, you're right, because there's too much protection for the church, and we see it all the time in Ireland, you know, and lots of young men, you know, killing themselves because of abuse and they can never, you know, it's the shame, but it's also this fear that no one will believe them. And, you know, the manly thing, as you said, oh, how will it make me look and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I was talking to someone recently and there was, you know, one abuser who was prominent around Ireland and he had abused like four to 500 boys in 40 years. Imagine, because he was 
prominent member of society going around and always protected by the people around him. And even now to this day, when those people are trying to, you know, get some kind of retribution or, you know, some kind of knowledge about it for everyone else, there's other channels stopping them. There's someone else trying to stop them. Like, don't talk about this, you know? Compensation, something, yeah. Yeah, those people are still, they're, they're, they're all around me. They try to stop me all the time. And I just walk up to their front door. <laughs> I just walk straight to their front door, excuse me. What's more interesting as well and, and scary is that, that this person I was talking to said to me, I'm actually scared for my life because this guy had very, very powerful friends that were involved in these pedophile rings and everything. Yeah. And they are still alive. And people are afraid to speak because of repercussions. And it's it's quite scary how far these people could go to silence you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and this is another thing that, you know, and, and I, I don't care what people say or think, but the scariest person on the planet is the one that just does not give a fuck. And I don't care. Yeah, exactly. I really don't. I do not give a fuck. Come after me, my wife, my kids, my grandkids. I couldn't give a flying fuck. Do what you got to do but I'll be here. Yeah, exactly. I'll be here to meet you at the door. Oh, yeah. Not a problem. <laughs> and if you don't come and I know you are, I'll be at your door. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, that's brilliant. And, you you know, uh, Bill, your story is inspirational. And I know, like, for me, obviously, the first thing I thought was the Coffin Confessor. But then as I looked at you and your story, I thought that's actually, his story is more interesting than the Coffin Confessions because the Coffin Confessions is the job you do. But your own life, I mean, I can see why they want to turn it into a film. And, you know, it's been a great book. But the, the great thing about it is mm. you're no different to so many other people out there. It's just that you've be, managed to put your story forward now because lots of people will find inspiration from that because they've lived similar types of lives. It's just maybe you've lived two or three lifetimes within that. So your story is all that more entertaining. But I mean, mm. it's inspirational and I commend you for the great work you've done and I commend you for having the balls <laughs> to stand up for who you are and for other people, you know? Uh, look, thank you so much. And it's one thing I've learned a long, long time ago is never, ever lose your dignity and never let anyone take it from you. No. You know, stand proud and strong. Yep. That's the thing. You know, we don't need to have millions of friends. We need to have one or two good friends who stick by us and are loyal and fuck the rest, you know, and... and you don't want all these people, like you said, at those funerals pretending to be somebody they're not. You want to be able to, someone to tell you straight who you are, who you shouldn't be, and you want somebody to be there when you need them. And, you know, as I said, that those kind of people are the strong people. They're the good people. So, you know, as I said, we appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. I could talk to you all day about this. There's so many interesting things. And we will have you on the show again because I'm sure you have other great stories to tell. So thank you very much for coming on, Bill Edgar, The Coffin Confessor. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, hi to all your listeners. I hope you enjoyed the book. Take care, guys. Brilliant. Thank you, Bill Edgar. Okay. Thank you very much, Mr. Bill Edgar, The Coffin Confessor. We really enjoyed that chat. That was so interesting. I mean, what a life. What an experience. And, you know, you've done some amazing things. And you're doing such good work for people and helping people, you know, even when they're gone, you're helping them. And you support so many good things. And through your own experiences, you've really come through for other people. And we commend you. And thanks for coming on the show. Really great to chat with you. And we look forward to having you on again. Thanks very much. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that show. Lots more guests like that to come. And we want you to stay tuned, follow the show, subscribe. And until the next time, my name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Look after yourself and your family. Take care. Bye bye.